the 2013 Ludwig von Mises Memorial Lecture is sponsored by Dr. Don Prince, who is with us today. Uh, the lecture will be presented by Dominic Armentano. Dr. Armentano is a professor emeritus in economics at the University of Hartford in Connecticut and an associated scholar of the Mises Institute. He also taught at the University of Connecticut, where he received his Ph.D. in economics in 1966. In the spring of 1984, he was Shelby Cullum Davis Visiting Professor at Trinity College. Dr. Armentano is the author of The Myths of Antitrust, Economic Theory, and Legal Cases, and Antitrust and Monopoly, Anatomy of a Policy Failure. The first of these books, um, I might add, was um, really the first book written by an Austrian um, in the generation that followed, Mar uh, followed the Rothbard and Kirzner, and it was, it was the first one that I read by someone other than Kirzner, Rothbard, and Mises. Um, Dr. Armentano's essays and articles have, have appeared in many other books, including William Snavely's Theory of Economic Systems, Yale Brosen's The Competitive Economy, and Louis M. Spadaro's New Directions in Austrian Economics. His shorter articles and reviews have appeared in such journals and newspapers as the Antitrust Bulletin, Business and Society Review, the New York Times, National Review, Wall Street Journal, and the Cato Journal. Professor Armentano and his wife reside in Vero Beach, Florida. Please give a warm welcome to my friend, Dom Marmentano. Several months ago, <clears throat> Joe Salerno from the Mises Institute sent me an email. He said that he'd noticed that, the 2000, that 2012 was the 40th anniversary of the publication of Myths of Antitrust and the 30th anniversary of Antitrust and Monopoly which was published in 1982. He suggested that to commemorate these publications that I come here today to talk a little bit about my background, my interest in Austrian economics, and how those two books came to be written and published. So that's the context of the talk that I will give today. It's not going to be a formal antitrust lecture by any means. It's going to be a background, it's going to be background historical material on myself and how those books came to be published and perhaps uh, the meaning of those books in terms of uh, the development of public policy. I'd like to thank Joe for the invitation, to thank Lou Rockwell for his stewardship of the Mises Institute and his support for me over the years, and to Don, Dr. Don Prince for generously supporting this year's von Mises Lecture, and to the conference coordinator, Pat Barnett, for taking care of my accommodations and arrangements for this talk. Thank you very much. I was born in the north end of Hartford, Connecticut, in late 1940. The North End is not the good end. <laughs> the good end is the South End, or at least it was back then, with excellent Italian bakeries and gelati ice sold in paper cups on street corners. My closest well-off relatives lived in the South End. I call them well-off because my uncle always drove a Cadillac, and my cousin, my cousin had a piano and a train set that covered the living room floor. But my parents, my sister, and I lived in the north end of Hartford in a two-bedroom, third-floor tenement apartment. When my sister and I brought the garbage down to the outdoor shed every night, we'd see the rats scrambling around, rattling the garbage can covers. The neighborhood that we lived in was poor Italian, poor Jewish, poor Polish, with a sprinkling of blacks. Today, to go into the north end of Hartford to Martin Street and to Barber Street and to Keeney Park, where I grew up, 
would require a flak jacket and a total absence of any common sense. (laughs) When I was 11 years old, my father had a serious fight with our landlord, and we had to move out. We eventually moved out of the city to the country where my dad was in the process of building a house. He was not a professional builder. His regular job was as a salesman for a plumbing and heating supply company in Hartford. But he went to the public library, and he took out books on building houses, and he decided that he could do it, and he did it. I have photographs of my mother and I on the roof of our first house in the country, holding roofers in place and nailing shingles. Now, like most kids, I would rather have been playing baseball somewhere. But most weekends back then were for manual work so that we could get the hell out of Hartford. I grew up in the 1950s with a strong sense of optimism and romanticism about life. Baseball and cars were important. Acting in school plays was important. Frank Sinatra singing on Capitol Records was important. Ayn Rand was always important. Gene Kelly dancing with Leslie Caron in An American in Paris was very important, still is. That cultural sense of life, that really good things were possible with reason and with hard work, infused my own worldview and my goals. In grammar school and in high school, I was fortunate enough to have had two extraordinary teachers who encouraged me to write stories, to put my thoughts on paper. I didn't need much encouragement. I loved writing, and it always came naturally to me. In almost 50 years of writing, I don't ever recall having writer's block or being late with a promise writing assignment. I have, of course, worked hard at my writing over the years. Now it's almost second nature to write, say, an op-ed piece for LouRockwell.com on the insane policies of the Federal Reserve. But where that initial desire to write stories came from is, frankly, a total mystery. I simply have no idea. There are no writers in my family. My mom uh, got to the eighth grade. My father graduated high school but I don't ever recall them writing anything or even being great readers. My serious interest in Austrian economics started in college and in graduate school, where outside the classroom, not in the classroom, I first read people like Henry Hazlitt and Hayek and Mises and Schumpeter, and especially Murray Rothbard. I also remember reading an antitrust essay written by someone named Alan Greenspan, in Rand's Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. As an undergraduate at the University of Connecticut, I remember arguing with one of my economics professors, Dr. Paul Weiner, over a textbook that he had assigned in my first antitrust course. That textbook was Claire Wilcox's infamous Public Policies Towards Business, published by Irwin. And Professor Weiner believed every word of it, and he expected his students to do the same. The Wilcox text was certainly the conventional economic wisdom at the time. The orthodox antitrust mantra went something like this. Pure competition was the ideal in terms of efficient resource allocation. Big firms colluded or exercised monopoly power. And the government's antitrust laws were there to protect consumers, and they did protect consumers. End of any serious discussion. When I raised some objections to all of this, I was an undergraduate at the time, Professor Weiner dismissed Henry Hazlitt as a mere journalist, and he dissed Alan Greenspan as an Ayn Rand devotee without a PhD. And Murray Rothbard, well, he had never even heard of Murray Rothbard. One episode with Professor Weiner sticks out in my mind sometime around the spring of 1960. 
Weiner would often dare some of his students to come back to his office and argue public policy questions with him. Frequently, by the way, he wouldn't show, but... (laughs) I recall he had a blackboard in his office, and once in the heated discussion with some of his students, including me, he allowed me to write something on that blackboard that I thought was quite profound at the time, as an undergraduate I did. I wrote, quote, there is no competition in pure competition, close quote. When I, fis- when I finished writing, Weiner just looked at me like I was from another planet, and he, and he shook his head. He didn't get what I had written, and he told me to go back and study harder. <laughs> now, that's pretty much the way it was back in 1960. Things were slightly better in grad school. Professor Bill Snavely nurtured my budding interest in Austrian economics by assigning me a term paper on the so-called calculation debate between Mises, Hayek, and the socialists. Shortly after I graduated, I would contribute an article um, on that intellectual debate, decisively won by the Austrians, I might add, in a book that Bill published called Theory of Economic Systems that Joe uh, referenced. That article was my first professional contribution along purely Austrian lines. My passion for antitrust theory and law was expanding enormously in grad school. I studied under Professor Joel Durlam, who was a well-published antitrust expert. Durlam was a crusty old school progressive, and we constantly disagreed about almost everything. Durlam had published a book called Fair Competition, and uh, like the debate about fair trade, uh, he, made, he made the same mistake. Again, the, the, let's have an equal playing field before we can have a competitive struggle. Um, so there were all kinds of things in his book, uh, all kinds of interventions that the government had to do to establish a fair playing field in, uh, in the antitrust area. <clears throat> Nonetheless, Durlam challenged me uh, to prove him wrong by allowing me to argue with him in class. That was, that was new. He also challenged me to go beyond the textbooks we were using, one of which was his, uh, and actually go read the original court documents and witness testimony in antitrust cases. No, no one had ever suggested that I do that before. Professor Durlam, of course, would eventually cook his own goose with that suggestion. <laughs> Because that's when I first began to realize, when I went to the law library and started to read those decisions, how distorted the conventional understanding of antitrust really was. Even more importantly, I also began to realize that Durham and most economists and most law professors at the time had gotten most of their antitrust policy conclusions dead wrong because they had accepted fundamentally inappropriate theories of competition and monopoly. But more on that later. My first book, Myths of Antitrust, Economic Theory and Legal Cases, was published by Arlington House in 1972. How did it come to be written? The answer is that when I first went to the University of Hartford to teach in 1967, I was asked to teach a senior-level course called Government and Business. The Wilcox text that I mentioned before had already been ordered by, 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 by department head before I arrived on campus, and the students and I both struggled with its poor reasoning and total absence of empirical information. It was at the end of my first year of teaching that I decided that I would write a textbook consistent with some of the research that I was doing and with the lectures that I was giving. Little did I realize then how wildly inaccurate conventional antitrust theory and history really were. 
And little did I realize that writing a casebook in this area would be a substantial undertaking, requiring several years of research and writing. In addition, I had a new wife, no external funding, no research assistance. How do you like that, guys? No research assistance. And, of course, no word processor. I did have a portable Smith Corona typewriter to pound away on, and so I began to pound away. For those of you who are unfamiliar with MIST, let me tell you a little bit what I tried to do here. The MIST book was an attempt to do a major revisionist history of antitrust theory and policy. The state of Connecticut had an excellent law library in Hartford, so I buried myself in legal decisions and trial record material for almost four years. My primary intent was to discover and report what actually happened in the classic antitrust cases from an economic perspective. To my knowledge, back then, no economist had as yet written a book-length criticism of antitrust enforcement. The Robert Bork book, The Antitrust Paradox, appeared six years after Miss of Antitrust was published. That book, as some of you may recall, is also highly critical of conventional antitrust theory and policy. But Bork, of course, was not an economist and certainly not an Austrian. He also thought antitrust policy should be reformed and not abolished. Bork was a lawyer by training, and indeed the subject had been left mostly to the lawyers and to the law professors, who apparently were blissfully unaware of the economic evidence in the antitrust cases and that it often contradicted their public interest legal analysis. Unlike the lawyers, I was interested in primarily two issues. One, what economic theory of competition and monopoly was the government and the courts accepting as legitimate in these cases? And two, did the business firms accused of antitrust violations actually abuse consumers? And therefore, was antitrust a legitimate response to so-called free market monopolization? I made an early decision with this to tell the story of the classic monopoly cases, antitrust cases, in the context of the actual historical development of the industry. For example, how did the market structure in the petroleum industry or in the tobacco industry actually arise? There's two classic antitrust cases against petroleum companies and tobacco companies, how did that market structure arise? How did that so-called free market monopolization problem arise in that industry? Why did the firms merge in tobacco and in oil? And were there so-called barriers to entry that unfairly kept profits up and new competitors out? Did that actually happen? Absent some historical discussion, the monopoly and price-fixing antitrust cases don't make any sense. And the actual intent and effect of the antitrust regulation remains obscure. Thus, examining, for example, the classic decision against Standard Oil, 1911, in the context of the historical development of the petroleum industry, would give a unique understanding to my competition and monopoly analysis and sharply separate my books from any of the competitors. Because my understanding is no one had done that. And after more than 40 years in print and various editions, I still think that the perspective that I adopted and the analysis that I attempted in the first book still holds up reasonably well. Miss of Antitrust attempted to break several areas of new ground. It systematically attacked the dominant structure-conduct-performance paradigm 
that dominated industrial organization theory and public policy back in the 1950s and 1960s. It presented an alternative quasi-Schumpeterian theory of open market competition to replace the orthodox, perfectly competitive equilibrium model. In addition, the book exposed the soft underbelly of the public interest theory of antitrust by demonstrating that the firms indicted and convicted in the classic monopoly cases had actually been increasing outputs, lowering prices, and innovating. Where available, I stuck the actual consumer prices and industry data right in the text, and no one had done that before. In its most radical chapter, the one on price fixing, Miss argued that the effectiveness of business collusion was also an antitrust fairy tale, since high fixed costs and legally open markets always encouraged price cheating and secret discounts to customers. It even showed that the electrical equipment conspiracy of the early 1960s, perhaps the most infamous price-fixing case in all antitrust history, had not really worked as intended. The companies cheated, broke their agreements constantly, and prices were never fixed. Thus, myths concluded that the entire body of antitrust policy, even including the price-fixing cases, was a complete policy hoax, and that absent any legitimate economic rationale, The entire legal framework hurt consumers and should be abolished. Now, getting this published with that analysis and those conclusions proved difficult. (laughs) My recollection is that, and this goes back many years now, I've got to recollect. My recollection is that at least six mainstream academic publishers rejected the book on the advice of academic reviewers. I do remember that Norton Publishers actually sent me, at my request, several referee comments on my early chapters. I had only submitted six chapters. Reading those comments was very, very depressing. Several of the reviewers claimed that I simply had no idea what the hell I was talking about. (laughs) Moreover, they thought that my policy conclusions were, well, outrageous. Now, I will admit that to argue that the antitrust laws actually hurt competition and hurt consumers and that the only rational solution is to repeal the laws was indeed far, far outside the mainstream in 1970. Yet naive as I was in those early days, I expected my theoretical arguments and case facts to be treated seriously. I was wrong. The mainstream, mainstream academic publishers and their reviewers wanted no part of Myths of Antitrust, even with a different title. So eventually, I would send the mostly completed manuscript to David Frankie at Arlington House. And the book was published, was completed, and then published in 1972. The immediate reaction to my book in the business and academic world was far less than I'd hoped, but about what I expected. Despite some important favorable reviews, especially one by economist Donald Dewey, who's always been a friend, Donald Dewey from at Columbia. <clears throat> In fact, he once told me my book was better than the Bork book after the Bork book had come out. Book sales of myths were modest, and the antitrust intellectual establishment did not come crumbling down. Indeed, most economists and law professors in the early 1970s simply chose to ignore what I'd written and or called instead for more vigorous enforcement of antitrust law. 
Indeed, back then, there was even strong support for new antitrust laws to limit industrial concentration, which only goes to show that the academic investment in old intellectual capital runs very, very deep. But there were at least two general exceptions to the academic indifference to what I'd written. At Chicago, at least in the business school, and at UCLA in particular, various scholars, such as Yale Brosen and Jim Liebler at UCLA, were reasonably sympathetic to my arguments. And both published later on their own important critiques of antitrust policy. However, the Chicago-UCLA crowd was always lukewarm to me and to my arguments, since I had attacked the perfectly competitive equilibrium model and had argued that even prosecuting price-fixing was a mistake. I remember long arguments with E.L. Brosen on this. <clears throat> Besides, I had called for a repeal of the antitrust laws and not reform, which made me an extremist and a non-player in the academic government merry-go-round. But a second group of supporters, the Austrians, led by Murray Rothbard, were very enthusiastic about my work, and I was soon drawn into their intellectual world in a more systematic way. But that's a story for another time. By the early 1980s, 10 years after myths came out, the antitrust landscape had changed somewhat, and I was encouraged enough to send a revised edition of myths to John Wiley and Sons a legitimate academic publisher in New York. Some weeks later, I still remember the phone call. I was in my office at the University of Hartford preparing for my evening class when a courageous editor from Wiley called, a man named John Mahaney, and he said, I'm sitting here and I'm reading your manuscript and Wiley wants to publish it. And at one point I said, you know, Mr. Mahaney, the book, the manuscript calls for the complete repeal of the antitrust laws. He said, yes, yes, that's what I understand, and John Wiley still wants to publish it. Bingo. And that book was eventually published in 1982 called Antitrust and Monopoly, Anatomy of a Policy Failure. Now, that book sold reasonably well, and uh, it had many positive reviews. And it's still in print today with the Independent Institute in Oakland. And I still get small royalty checks, enough to go to Burger King with. <laughs> What's interesting, of course, is the guts of that book is still myths of antitrust. If anybody's got the two books, you can compare them. I'll talk about the differences in a minute. But yet the antitrust world had changed just enough in 10 years to get antitrust and monopoly treated the new book. <laughs> far more reasonably by reviewers this time around. I, I got, for what I'd said, the radical things I'd said, I, I, th I think I got pretty good reviews. <clears throat> so the lesson to young scholars out there, <clears throat> you have to hang in there. <clears throat> I talk a bit about the differences between the two books. The Myths of Antitrust book has an introductory chapter where I talk about how the market works. Uh, in theory. Um, and when Wiley got the book, they said, look, everybody knows. The economists are going to read your book, know how the market process works. <clears throat> and we, we don't think we need that chapter. Get, you're, you've written a book about competition, monopoly, and antitrust law. Get to it. So we dropped the uh, opening chapter in uh, myths. 
doesn't appear in the antitrust and monopoly book. Um, there's also a, an extended discussion of the petroleum industry beyond Standard Oil uh, and all the interventions and all the monop state monopoly that shows up after that decision and, and how that industry developed as a consequence of that. Uh, that was all added when I was on sabbatical out at the Institute of Humane Studies and they allowed me to do some additional research and writing on that. So we added that. And there's some, there's some new antitrust cases that 10 years had gone by, so I added a couple of cases, as I recall. But the guts of the book is still a mess of antitrust. Actually, the only blatantly unfair review of antitrust and monopoly that I ever got came years later in 1991 from the dean of the old school antitrust establishment, F.M. Shearer. Somebody knows who he is. <laughs> Frederick Shearer, I think he's still alive. Frederick Shearer is a, was a Harvard-trained economist, had been chief economist with the Federal Trade Commission for a while, and was or is the author of what used to be the best-selling antitrust textbook, Industrial Organization and Public Policy, which had instructed generations of antitrust economists and had been through umpteen editions. Professor Shearer and I had actually met years before while we were giving opposing lectures on antitrust at Hillsdale. He gave a lecture one night, I gave a lecture the following night, as I recall. And then we had a lunch. Our lunch and discussion on antitrust, especially on price fixing, had not been pleasant. And Shearer's rather shrill and purposely inaccurate review of my book in the journal Critical Review in 1991 was payback, apparently, for having the audacity to challenge his antitrust worldview. Now, the critical review editor, bless his heart, I think it was Jeff Friedman, allowed me to write a detailed point-by-point -point rebuttal to Shearer's hatchet job on my book, a rebuttal which we cannot detail here, but which must be read by anyone seriously interested in these controversies. If you're interested in these controversies, you should read Shearer's attack on my book and what I said in rebuttal. I regard my rejoinder to Shearer as one of my finest and most persuasive pieces of professional writing. My guess is that Shearer never let his own students read my point-by-point -point dismantling of his antitrust views. What's going on in the antitrust world today? <clears throat> well, you, you must understand that I've been, I haven't been teaching since 1994. Uh, so I haven't kept up with the journals. I've tried to keep up with some of the antitrust stuff that goes on, public policy stuff. Certainly kept up with the Microsoft uh, debacle that went on for almost 10 years. <clears throat> so having said that, well, all of the antitrust laws still exist. Even the blatantly anti-consumer Robinson-Patman Act has not been repealed. Even liberal economists, even some liberal economists don't think the Robinson-Patman Act should be there. The antitrust division of the Department of Justice still brings antitrust cases. There's still pri many private antitrust cases that go on. Federal Trade Commission is not going out of business, although they are a wee bit more restrained and more rational than they were 20 years ago. I will say that. With the recent appointment of, of Josh Wright to the Federal Trade Commission, I expect that trend to continue. Uh, he's a good person, and he has important and mostly correct views on antitrust policy. And while neo-Austrian theories of competition in the market process are taken far more seriously today than, say, 30 years ago, 
Nonetheless, the structure, conduct, performance, and barriers to entry paradigm, though amended and though modified and though mathematized, still dominates discussions of so-called monopoly power and is still legally relevant in tying agreement cases, in monopoly cases, in proposed business merger cases, and, of course, in all price-fixing cases. One has only to look back a few years at the decade-long Microsoft prosecutions or look forward at the current antitrust case against Apple Computer and several book publishers. Apple will go to court on June 5th in New York in a major antitrust case, unless they settle before then, to realize that the general antitrust myth and hoax still survives. The antitrust establishment, the lawyers, the bureaucrats, the academics, and yes, the corporations who benefit from antitrust regulation still hold the high ground in this struggle between liberty and governmental power. I'm sometimes asked whether calling for the repeal of antitrust laws was a strategic mistake on my part. Didn't I hurt the cause by taking such extreme theoretical and policy positions? Now, that's certainly an important and fair question. Strategy questions are fair. Jim Liebler, a now-deceased UCLA law professor and an old friend, once told me that I had made two strategic mistakes. The first was that I had not graduated from Yale or Harvard. (laughs) He said that my arguments would have been taken far more seriously if I had. Jim was probably right about that. The second was that I had called for repeal and not reform of antitrust law. Jim assured me, that that sort of extremism just never goes over well with the legal and intellectual establishment. (laughs) Again, Jim was probably right about that, too. Ironically, Jim Liebler had made some serious strategic mistakes of his own. You may know that name. He was a staff attorney for the Warren Commission back in the 1960s and inadvertently, perhaps, a part of the cover-up and whitewash of the assassination of John Kennedy. But again, that's definitely a story for another time. (laughs) Strategic mistakes aside, I wouldn't be at peace with myself or be presenting the von Mises lecture here today at Auburn if I had gone only halfway with my theoretical arguments or policy recommendations. The fact remains that all antitrust regulation and its regulation is economically inefficient and morally wrong. And all of it, the laws and the enforcement agencies, should be thrown out. I say this because it's right and because it's true and because it's always our obligation, regardless of the consequences, to speak truth to power. That's a tradition, I'm told, that has been followed quite religiously here at the Mises Institute under Lou Rockwell. And finally, a quote that all economists and law professors need to memorize, and you'll know a part of the quote, at least. In fact, this was part of the debate that Shearer and I had when we had that little luncheon. He, he remembered the part that businessmen rarely meet together when, they don't, when they're not contriving a conspiracy against the public. But he forgot the second part of the quotation. So I'll read the whole quotation for you. Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, written 238 years ago 
Still sounds absolutely correct to me. Quote, people of the same trade meet together, seldom meet together, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. It, no, nothing left out here now, it is impossible, indeed, to prevent such meetings by any law which either could be executed or would be consistent with liberty and justice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh, Professor Ramantano, uh, Dr. Ramantano will take questions. No lawyers here? <laughs> Did uh, Colco have any influence? Was he before or after you? Gabriel he was Colco? before, yeah. before me. And uh, an influence, yeah, I read his stuff and thought it was, some of it was correct. I remember when I was doing the railroad uh, uh, this, the rebates discussion in standard oil case. Uh, I remember reading his railroads and regulation. I think he wrote. Yeah, I mean he wrote. You know, he wrote quite a few things. But that's right. I think I drew a lot out of that book. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, he did have one. An influence. <laughs> I'm curious in, uh, about your thoughts about the uh, Microsoft case. I have this perverse. Uh, insight that I think that the only reason they brought that case is because uh, Bill Gates never gave any money to politicians. Uh, what do you... I've heard that. <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of competitor interest to bring that case, as you must know. Um, even, my, even Robert Bork, who claimed that antitrust was a bunch of hooey, was the lead economist for the competitive group that, that were anti-Microsoft. So there was, there was a lot of special interest stuff going on there with that, uh, with that case. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know which, how much more I can do with that. I, mean, I can go on and on about Microsoft forever, because the case went on forever. It started with the Federal Trade Commission way back in, what, 1992, I believe. And then, but eventually the Justice Department got involved and tried to break up the company, of course, and failed. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Professor Armentano, my, my question will actually give you an opportunity to talk more about Microsoft, because <laughs> my, my question is specifically about the sort of claim you'll hear made by people who have Macs, for example, and people who use Macs tend to be belligerent toward people who use PCs, and they'll say, they'll say, yes, it's true that Microsoft was not hurting anybody by giving away free product, you know, we'll accept that, but the fact is, Microsoft products are very buggy and annoying, and they are not responsive to consumers, and yet somehow, it seems like by monopoly power, nevertheless, the worst company is still the one that wins out. How do you respond to that sort of argument? Well, you know, I try to see what consumers do and, and uh, what, they, what they did in the face of options, and there were many, many options, many competitors. The idea that they had a monopoly of the market, of course, was absurd. They never had a monopoly in the market. So there were always alternatives that consumers could, could turn to. Uh, I mean, you know, you get 10 people in a room, and some people are going to say, we love Microsoft, 
uh, hardware and software. And some people are going to say, it, as you said, it's buggy and, and crashes all the time, and we don't understand how consumers could support it. Uh, but they did support it. Um, I mean, the, the tying, you know, the, the, the early tying of the browser into the operating system was innovative, uh, as I understand it, for, for, what, for what they were doing versus what Apple was doing. Um, prices went down. Innovation occurred in the industry. Uh, there, were no, there were no restraints of trade. Microsoft didn't really put any restraints on uh, anyone, anyone. There were no uh, agreements to, to restrain trade. Uh, it was an easy case for me. I, I never tried to figure out, frankly, what, whether the consumers were right or wrong. I just went on the basis of the fact that they knew what, what they wanted. And what they wanted at that time was Microsoft. And those things change, as we know. If, if the case had never been brought, uh, Microsoft would have gone downhill just like they have gone downhill. A, a somewhat less visible case than the Microsoft case was the vitamin, international vitamin price-fixing case. And I just wondered if you... Don't know anything about that. Oh, okay. Well, so it was much Sorry. less visible than Microsoft. <laughs> Don't know anything about that one. The Apple case, by the way, is interesting. That the, the one that's coming up, because the book publishers that were involved in the in the suit, that that, case, that part of the case has been settled. I mean, they gave they gave up. Uh, they apparently had been in hotel rooms talking about prices. I mean, you can't do that. You, whether the prices are fixed or not is beside the point. Legally, you can't do that. Uh, so they've made all kinds of they, they've signed consent decrees with the Department of Justice. By the way, it's interesting when you hear the word consent decree, you you got to look and see what they've consented to, uh, and and it, there's a lot of micromanagement going on uh, in these consent decrees. Um, things you can do, things you can't do. They got to have a compliance officer in house. They've got a all their all future. Uh, uh, Contractual agreements with uh, people like Apple or Barnes and Noble have to be approved. Um, so just because the government withdraws from a case or there's a consent decree and the case ends doesn't mean that antitrust hasn't done some harm. It probably has, but unless you read the fine print, you'll you, you won't discover it. Yeah, yeah. When uh, when you're explaining the history of uh, getting the book published. You, of course, had emphasized uh, the reaction by the academic community. But I was curious about another element of it. You may recall, since you quoted Adam Smith, that at the end of his critique of mercantilism, he, in a despondency, says that it's as likely that we'll ever see free trade in Great Britain as a utopia because of two factors. The prejudices of the public, which I always interpret mean, meaning the difficulty of the economist to explain the logic of the market to the average person, and the power of the interests who don't want their privileges and favors to be dismantled. I'm curious that over the years in uh, interacting with or speaking before groups, uh, did you ever uh, run into people in the business community, either large business or medium-sized business, uh, who uh, ha seemed to you to be resentful or opposing of your argument because of the benefits they may have received in some uh, antitrust litigation? Not explicitly. Uh, there's, there's no great understanding by your average businessman of how antitrust policy really works, and certainly no understanding of, let's say, Austrian competition theory. Um, 
But no, not explicitly. No one, no businessman's ever come to me and said, uh, you know, we don't like your arguments because our firm just won an antitrust suit, and without it, we wouldn't be in the market, and we'd have to lay off X number of employees. No, that, that's never happened. Um, um, I, I don't. I, the business community has never been very supportive of my positions. They've just sort of been indifferent to them. Um, um. Dom, in the, um, <clears throat> in the 1970s and 1980s, I think from a free market perspective, generally, not just an Austrian perspective, but it, it was actually pretty heady times for I.O. I mean, you had the whole new learning thing with the UCLA school. You had your work uh, at Brosen at, um, at Chicago. Dempsey, so, I mean... I was going through graduate school at the time, and I thought, wow, we've won I.O. And that seemed to be the, the peak. And it's kind of uh, the whole UCLA is completely turned around. There's no one from you know, the UCLA school at UCLA anymore. Um, do you have thoughts on that, why that took place? Was it, the pop, was, was it what was going on in Washington that drove that, sort of a, after Reagan and, 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 and his uh, Federal Trade Commission? You know, when, we're, when we're young, I think we, we think our ideas, if they're right and logical and we've got the facts, will really matter, <laughs> will really change people's views. I mean, when, <laughs> I, I hate to say this at a Lou Rockwell... Uh, <laughs> conference. But, you know, I'm 73 years old now. And um, you're right. I mean, those arguments were persuasive. The evidence was persuasive. But it bounced off against uh, the antitrust establishment, which will, which will always be there, unfortunately. Uh, the attorneys that make money on this, um, and some of the business firms that sue, and, and it benefits them, and the regulatory agencies, as long as they're there. You know, when we, when we deregulated the air carrier industry, the best thing we did was, of course, get rid of the CAB, get rid of the regulatory agency. If, if you keep the regulatory agency there, there's always going to be economists or, and lawyers who are going to want to go there and serve, and, and they tend to get corrupted, and nothing ever really changes. Now, that's, of course, that's, that's going too far. I mean, things did get and have gotten slightly better. Uh, the Microsoft case aside, there's been, there's, been some, there's been some progress. The Federal Trade Commission is nowhere near as nasty and as stupid as they were in the 50s. When, when, uh, I mean, you can't believe something. I mean, you, you've got to be a total economic illiterate uh, to uh, swallow some of the arguments they were making. Um, but I, I, I think that's my answer, that uh, progress is a hell of a lot harder in, in, in our area than, than you would guess, given how right we are, right? <laughs> and, we, and we know we are. We've, we've tested our arguments. We've tested the facts. People don't care. Some people just don't care. You know, I spend a lot of time on a golf course now with people, and, we, and I, I, you know, I, I'm used to presenting my arguments so the common man can understand them. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll ch challenge my golf buddies about certain public policy issues. They don't care. They've got families to worry about, and they've got a dog that just bit somebody, and they've got, you know, I mean, 
you know, we live, we live in a real cloistered world, we, we intellectuals. Uh, it'd be nice if we could get our hands around the government and, and strangle it, but <laughs> can't do that. Tom, um, Murray Rothbard was known for um, being very uh, gleefully accepting any sort of intellectual breakthrough, um, any new contribution. Uh, and I, I remember being with him um, when we were going to Temple University, there, or Drexel University in Philadelphia. There was a libertarian conference there that you were speaking at, and he was extremely excited to meet you finally. Right. My question is, what, what was his re- reaction uh, to, to the, the the book. Did you send him a copy of the book? Did he write you a letter, like he's done to many of us? Um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I physically sent Murray a copy, but he did get a copy, and he did send me a congratulatory letter. And yes, you're, you're, I'm glad you brought that up. That's the first time I met Murray in person, I believe. It was it was at uh, in Temple, Temple University? Uh, it was Drexel University. Drexel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Murray was very supportive. I miss Murray to this day. Um, he was, he was always, as we know, always upbeat and always smart on these issues. And, and you know, nothing's original with Armentano. I mean, these monopoly theories and competition theories that I talk about are Austrian, Rothbard Austrian theories. They're not necessarily Misesian, and they're certainly not Hayekian, uh, because there's some differences there. But uh, certainly Murray's influence is very strong. And I would think if he were to write an antitrust book, it would have sort of come out like this. <laughs> Would have been a little better, probably theoretically. <laughs> well, you also wrote a notable paper. Um, I think you gave the Hartford Conference, then you re- re- um, revised it and gave it at Windsor Castle, I believe. That was published on Austrian monopoly theory. Yes. C- can you just you know talk about a little bit of how that came about and why um, why you wrote that? Joe, you're scratching you're scratching a twenty year old memory now. Oh, more than that. <laughs> uh, I think, I think I wanted to look at Mises's theory of monopoly and see whether it was Rothbardian, uh, or who, who was consistent with whom. And, uh, I remember looking at Kirzner's theories. Mises, it seems to me, had a fairly straightforward conventional theory of monopoly. You, you, uh, some firm owns all the supply of some product. And, uh, charge and, and, uh, that, that's monopoly. Now, whether a monopoly price actually exists depends on the elasticity of the demand curve, as I recall. Uh, so if the, if, if the supply was restricted by this monopolist and the price went up and the revenues went up, then that was the monopoly price. Now, interesting, interestingly, in Mises, he thought that was a problem. Uh, in fact, I think I've got the quote somewhere because I thought I might get a question on Mises. Uh, <laughs> At the Mises Institute. <laughs> he, he said the, the monopoly price uh, evidences a defiance of the wishes of the consumer. Now, Murray strongly disagreed with that. I mean, the demand curve is the wishes of the consumer along its entire length. Uh, it's not just the elastic portion of that demand curve. So... Uh, Kirzner doesn't exactly uh, follow along those lines. He talks more about a natural resource problem, natural resource monopoly problem. In fact, I think the example he uses is oranges. If somebody monopolizes all the oranges, then orange juice manufacturing has been monopolized. I don't think he says that's any sort of a problem, but he says that's monopoly. That's what I mean by monopoly. 
Um, he says, of course, you know, you can, you can be entrepreneurial and, and, and surround that monopoly with competitive products. Well, we all agree, we all agree with that. Very schumpeterian. Um, but I think, as I recall in that article, I even criticized, uh, Kirzner for, uh, pointing out or, or arguing that you could really have an orange juice monopoly just because you could monopolize all the existing oranges. You'd have to, you'd have to monopolize all the existing land on which oranges can be grown. You'd have to monopolize all the oranges that are grown in all, all the oranges I'm consuming at home right now are from Spain. And they're great. Uh, and you live in Florida. <laughs> yeah, and I live in, I live in Florida and we can't, we can't produce that orange that, that I'm consuming in, in, uh, that, that comes from Spain. So there, there are some differences. If you're interested in monopoly theory, there's some differences between Mises and Kirzner and Rothbard. And I adopted the Rothbardian theory of monopoly, which means the state comes in and prevents entry. And that's the only way to really talk about monopoly, that there's monopoly in the market because there can't be entry. And not just barriers to entry that tend to be economic. We're talking about legal barriers that, you, that presumably you can't buy your way around or get around. Um, other questions. Let me just let me just push you one more time. Did Israel Kirzner, you know, respond to your book? I mean, which he would have liked, or no. or, or to that article? Never heard. Never heard from Israel on that. Okay. Any other questions? The Kirzner book came out in 1973, one year after my book came out. I wasn't really familiar with Israel's arguments um, until after they came out in book form. Uh, Dom, I was interviewing for my first. Uh, postdoctoral job in 1976, and one of the interviews that I endured was with um, a, an economist uh, who worked in the antitrust division of the Department of Justice. I uh, went into the interview, and he immediately started in with the neoclassical lingo uh, when we were talking about, well, what do you do when, you're, when I ask, you know, what exactly do you do? And he referred to the perfect competition model as the ideal and the oligopoly and monopoly models. And it took about 10 minutes for him to realize that we were not thinking on the same page. <laughs> and the rest of the interview, the other 20 minutes, was spent talking about mutual acquaintances. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I just wondered, um, do the staff economists at the uh, antitrust division, are they still like that? <laughs> There's a case right now against Budweiser. Budweiser wants to buy, actually complete the buying of, because they already own 50% of a firm called Grupo, I think it is, that, that sells Corona beer. <clears throat> Budweiser is the largest uh, domestic seller, and Corona, they say, has 7% of the market, largest import, largest imported beer. Anyway, they, went, they, they made an agreement to, to merge, and the Justice Department has stepped in. Now, for anybody out there who thinks we've made progress in antitrust thinking, read, read the K, read the indictment. It sounds like 1965 all over again. Arguments about monopoly power, the Herfindel Index, for those IO guys out there, the Herfindel Index, which I thought we'd buried back in the 70s. Oh, the Herfindel Index, it, these neoclassical economists who work for the government said, it's going to go up by X amount, and that's, that's bad. That, that evidence is monopoly power. I, I made, I thought, devastating arguments about the Herfindel Index. It's totally arbitrary. 
based on, based on non-scientific definitions of relevant market. In fact, you can't define a market scientifically anyway. And, and based on totally arbitrary increases in numbers, which, may, which are meaningless. They've never correlated it with any change in a, in a firm's ability to price its product or restrain entry or anything else. And yet it showed up <laughs> in this case. What's really devastating is that part of the indictment says there are barriers to entry and you can't get into the beer industry, so we can't allow this merger. <laughs> in 1887, there were 2,000 brewers in the United States. During Prohibition, that number dropped to almost zero. Today, there are over 2,500 brewers in the United States. Now, many of them are so-called craft brewers, Small brewers, six, I think small in brewing is six million barrels a year or something like that. But there are no barriers to entry. In fact, let me read you something from the American Brewers Association. <laughs> there are 1,252 brewers being planned as of February 2013. They will come online at some point. An additional 2,000, at this time, the government is bringing a suit to stop monopoly power in the, in, the, in the brewing industry. There's hundreds of firms flowing into it. Now, maybe they're flowing into it because they think monopoly is going to raise the prices, and they're all going to enjoy those prices. I don't know. Uh, but, we, yeah, neoclassical theories, I guess so. I, mean, I don't think they've, they've learned too much. Or maybe you simply adopt your arguments to, uh, you know, make the case you want to win. You want to stop a merger. Use any arguments you can, even if they're old and wrong and deflated and whatever. You use them. Last question. Uh, <clears throat> Budweiser is owned by InBev, a foreign company. Don't you think that might be more politically based? Could be. Um, I, I forget whether the government was opposed to that or that purchase originally. It went, I know I know it went through, but I, I wonder if they were, saw that as a problem. I guess Anheuser was having, what, financial problems at the time that they were absorbed? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, it could relate to, to polit, foreign politics. Foreign political considerations, I really, don't, I really don't know. But I do know on its merits, there's nothing to this case. Now, it, it's going it's to be settled. You know why? Because Budweiser is going to do what the government wants them to do. They want them to shed some assets to get the market share numbers down and to throw some brands away uh, so that there won't be collusion uh, after the merger to restrain trade and drive up price. And you know what? Anheuser is probably going to agree to it. I don't see why not. They're going to, they're going to agree to it. Why go through a trial? The more interesting case, if that's the last question, is this Apple case now. Uh, and what's interesting about it is the government's claiming a conspiracy to restrain prices. Apple never conspired with its competitors. You know, usually in, a, in a, what we call a horizontal case, you're talking about a firm that does something colluding with another firm that does the same thing. Well, in, in Apple's case, that would have been Amazon. Amazon was uh, selling books online for some of the publishers, and Apple got into that business, as some of you may know or do know. Now, there's no allegations in this case that Apple and Amazon have colluded. Uh, and yet, they're alleging, apparently, a conspiracy between Apple and the book publishers. Now, that's, that's a vertical arrangement. And um, 
Apple acted as their agent in this case. It was an agency uh, arrangement. And uh, I don't know whether there's precedent for treating an agency arrangement like that as a, an agreement to restrain trade and competition, a violation of antitrust laws. But the government wants that decision. If they win, no, no penalties. This should be interesting, too. They, they don't want any money. Normally, you sue and you want money. They don't want any money. But they want the precedent set that these agreements between Apple and the book publishers is illegal under antitrust law. And they want that because the state attorney generals and the consumer groups are going to sue and collect the money. So there's, there's money. You can bet your ass there's always money somewhere in these cases. And that's where it is. And that's, I think, what the government is looking to do. It'd be wise for Apple to settle this case, I think. I don't think there's much to gain if they, if they go to court. They could lose a lot, but we'll have to see. Thank you very much, Don. Thank you.